0: Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now.
1: Welcome to the Post Traumatic Survival Podcast, a show that helps you rewire your brain to survive and thrive. Join your host, Ozzy Martinez Jr., a Marine, a combat disabled vet, husband and father as he shares his first-hand knowledge and experience of hitting rock bottom, almost ending it all, and then turning it around. Dive into the rewired minds of thriving survivors. This show is an in-depth look at post-traumatic survival. And now, Ozzy.
2: What's up, ladies and gentlemen? Hope everybody's having a great day so far great way to start your week listening to this podcast or whenever, whenever it is you're listening to. So I'm literally going to ask you a question. doesn't matter to me. It doesn't matter. It doesn't need to be September 11th to talk about that day, to remember it or anything like that. I don't need some bullshit anniversary remembrance party that somebody's going to do or something like that. I'll talk about this every day because this affected my life and the direction my life took from the day it happened. So I'm going to ask you as my listeners, where were you? That morning on September 11th, where were you? Let me know if you remember, you know, leave, leave a comment in the reviews. Let me know. I'm going to let you know where I was. A lot of you have heard my story. I was 20 years old, uh, working at a power plant and we were helping build, rebuild a power plant in Tampa, Florida. It was, uh, uh I believe the Tico power plant or whatnot. And I remember that the president was in the area when this had happened. And there was so much commotion going off from McDill Air Force Base that you could see from the distance, jets going up in the air, all this stuff. And then finally we were able to turn on the news and we were told that, you know, the United States had been attacked. I was a twenty-year-old at this time, high school dropout, and I was moved. I, I I literally saw in my in my I don't know what I felt was Literally seeing the country crippled to its knees—that's what those two towers going down meant to me, and everything came to me at that moment. That I'm 20 years old. I'm a high school dropout. I'm a failure in the eyes of my family. That came here in the 60s after communism took over in, in in Cuba, and I was lucky to be born here, the first generation, and for both sides of my family to be born here. And here I am, pissing it away, and now we've been attacked not just the first time because I was old enough to remember the first time they attacked in the basement with uh, the vans. And I remember biggie raps about it. And uh, to me, it was just, oh, my God, they've attacked us twice now. And this is going to continue. And all I could picture is repeated attacks of Pearl Harbor style. Happening in the United States is what I thought was going to happen. Little terror groups were just going to start detonating and fighting was going to be happening here. And I honestly decided in that point in time, when I saw this military movement that my, my thing was to join the military. So I called a recruiter. I asked what do I need to do to join the Marine Corps. He told me you need to be a graduate. I ended up going back to a local high school right there in the local area. I had dropped out my senior year with three months shy of my, of my graduation. My mom almost killed. My whole family almost killed me. And I chased other dreams that didn't work out, but I ended up going back to that high school in in Tampa in the Brandon area, got my Florida high school diploma, called that recruiter and said, hey, man, I'm ready. I ended up going to Iraq twice. It changed my life to the point where I became suicidal because of the things that I saw and I did that I will never regret doing. I still tell people that I will do it over and over again because in my eyes, we took the fight to them over there instead of them having to come over here and fight us. And I saw it on a daily basis. I remember people, the fighters we were seeing were not Iraqis. It's not like we were fighting Iraqis. We were fighting people that were flying into there because they, in their eyes, they were like, hey, now they're in our backyard. We don't got to fly across the pond anymore to attack them. We could attack the infidels here. So they, we, were, we, were, we, were, we were doing what we wanted to do and it worked in, in my eyes. So I'll do it all over again. But let me tell you that my life changed drastically and a lot of you have heard the reason why I have this podcast and the reason why I'm living the way I am is because of the overcome Academy that I went through from my brother, Jason Redman. And one of the individuals I met in the overcome Academy is the individual that is my guest today, uh, Timothy Brown. Um, he is, uh, I'm gonna let him introduce himself, but this goes to where were you that day on September 11th, because this is the day that Timothy's life changed. And eventually later on in 2000, 18, 2017, our lives would cross because of that day. So I want everybody to know now, where were you that day? Because of that day now, you're going to meet Tim and hear this amazing story. So, Tim, thank you so much for being on my show, brother.
0: Hey, Oz, happy to be here. It's nice to finally get back with you.
2: Yep, yep, yep. So, brother, um, I'm going to go ahead and ask you that same question. You know, where, where were you that day? What were you doing that morning?
0: So I had been a New York City firefighter for about 15 years then and um i was detailed to work for mayor giuliani in his office of emergency management so i had actually taken off my coat and helmet firefighter coat and helmet and i was wearing a tie and and uh uh working for the mayor doing uh emergency management stuff my my job was then was to go to the scene of uh emergencies and facilitate interagency uh, coordination on behalf of the mayor, you know, with a a jack, uh, jacket that said mayor's office on it. And, and, uh, and we were very successful in this new um, office that we had started up.
2: You were almost like that a liaison mayor, position.
0: Yeah, a liaison representing the mayor, uh, kind of bringing the power of the mayor to the scene of emergencies. You know, we were rarely the incident commander because that was police and fire. Uh, rightfully so. But we, you know, if they needed help or they needed someone to stay in line or something, we were the kind of the heavy that came in and we were that and authority. Them. Yeah, exactly right. And, and no, the way Rudy was, you know, uh, or is, I guess, um, nobody wants to get that angry phone call from him. So, <laughs> hmm. so it was very uh, effective. So our office was actually in Seven World Trade Center, uh, and uh, we were just across directly across VZ Street from the North Tower, which is the first tower that was hit. Uh, I had gone in to work that morning uh, around uh, 8 8 a.m., and I went to the cafeteria, which was a a mezzanine, like on the third level, Uh, and I sat down and had my Cheerios. It was my uh, routine, and I would buy all the newspapers because we didn't have smartphones then. Uh, And I would read all the newspapers about what was going on uh, throughout the city in the last 24 hours. Just so I was up on stuff. And uh, all the power went out in the building all at once. And it was very unusual. Modern high rise in New York City, you don't usually get that happening. So I said, "Uh uh-oh, something happened. And the power came back on in like four or five seconds, which means our our backup kicked in. And we were probably on uh, generator power now. But I, didn't, I didn't know what happened, and the people who were sitting at the glass that was facing the North Tower, when this power went out, like, this all happened at the same time. They all jumped up and started screaming and running toward the exit, so they were running by me, uh, and I actually had to stop one girl and shake her by her shoulders kind of back to re- reality and say, what happened, and uh, she said a plane hit the tower, and that's how I uh, first knew about it. And you know, as we this had happened before in New York City, you know, where a, a, a pilot has a medical episode or something, and they hit a, they hit a, one of the buildings. So it wasn't like a, a, a panic. It was very bad, and I knew we were going to be jumping into action really quickly. Um, I, I get what you're impressive.
2: saying. It wasn't a panic like get your arms, get ready, we're at war, we're we're being attacked. It was it was an accident a panic. It was what you're saying.
0: Yeah, accident, like, it was, you You know, you right away you imagine right. it. it's a small, a small plane. It was a mistake. The guy had a heart attack. Yeah. You know, something you know, went wrong, and we can deal with this. Um, and that's how you know, just about everyone that I worked with and all, all that, it, it, that was their initial uh, uh, thought also. Unless you actually saw the plane and saw how big it was and that it aimed –
2: Right, because like what you said, this isn't like people had their phones. You weren't, you didn't, you weren't in the few few minutes. You didn't weren't able to see people. All you saw was the fear of people running away from you, and what they heard—a plane hit—and you're like, okay, so then we just need to attack. Uh, We need to, we need to attack this accident is what you need to do.
0: Exactly right. Uh, There was no thought in my mind initially that it was an intentional uh, uh, attack. Yeah,
2: and a plane of that magnitude, of that size, like you said.
0: So I went I went down and my, my job was to go to the command post. So uh, I went down to my car that was parked on, like undercover cop car. It was parked on VZ Street. And I uh, took off my tie and my button-down shirt and stuff. And I threw on my mayor's office jacket and my heavy leather boots. And uh, they made us wear this stupid green helmet so everybody knew who we were. And I, I threw that helmet on. And I, I went up. They teach us as firefighters. Always look at three sides of a building before you go into the building so you have kind of some kind of size up of what's happening in your head before you go into the building, and I I wanted to do that, so I had to go up an exterior staircase to the plaza level, and uh, I did that. and I was trying to look up, but you can imagine looking up 80 90 stories right underneath it, it's hard to see all the way up there and hard to have a size up. Uh, so I did my best. And I went into the the tower, the North Tower, Tower 1, that was hit first. I went into that at the uh, plaza level, and I had to go back down an escalator inside the building. And uh, I remember looking out over the lobby and seeing the hundreds of firemen uh, that were awaiting their orders to go up. the civilians were evacuating the building and they weren't running and panicking and screaming. In fact, it was the opposite of that. They, for everyone that needed help, uh, there was someone, two, three, four other office workers helping them out, whether they were obese or pregnant or injured or whatever, they were taking care of each other. And it, it kind of heartened me in that moment that that's the true human spirit, no matter what happens today. We're going to be okay because that's the true human spirit we help each other and we love each other i got on the escalator in this crowd that was trying to get out of the building and as i was riding down the escalator i looked out over the firefighters hundreds of firefighters waiting to go up and i kind of chuckled because i realized in that moment why the cops called us bumblebees Because we have the yellow stripes on our jackets. And when hundreds of us get together, we look like a big hive. And that's what I was looking at. I was looking at this hive, you know, of heroes. And I got to the bottom of the escalator, and right in front of me, standing right in front of me, was one of the bumblebees. My friend Chris Blackwell from Rescue 3, where I had worked for seven years. And not only was he my friend, because we worked together, but we worked on the same shift all the time. So like, you know, we, it's like your blood brother, right? You 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 don't have anything about each other.
2: Yeah, You build a camaraderie. That is, I tell my wife and, and it's hard because I'm telling my wife and that even the the relationship I build with her and the kids, isn't the same that I build with that team that you go through the trauma together and, and, and then come out of it together you you build this bond yeah it's it's blood brothers it's
0: yeah so chris was my uh he was that guy to me right and we were the bronx firemen we weren't the manhattan firemen so like we we didn't have maybe the right gear on all the time and maybe the right helmet our helmets were all burned burned up and they sat sideways on our head and you know the the stripes our coats were all burned up from all the f- fires we went to
2: i relate that sounds like that you guys sound like the marine yeah. corps of the fire department then that's how yeah. <laughs> that's how we get looked at when we w- we would walk into bases like oh look there are these guys with uh ooh, look <laughs> but, at these uniforms <laughs> yeah.
0: so and we didn't you know we didn't shave you know you're supposed to shave we didn't always shave all the time and and that was chris and he was also a, a paramedic so whenever he left the firehouse in the Bronx and he went home to Connecticut, he was a volunteer paramedic in Connecticut. So all this guy did was help people, you know, twenty four seven. Whenever we had a, a, an injured person, an injured child, especially, if Chris was working, we always tried to put that injured person in his hands because we knew that they had the best shot at life in his hands. And that's who this this amazing human was. And Chris and I always had the same, we greeted each other the same way, no matter what. And I came right up. We were standing right in front of each other, just like this. And I come right in front of him. We both go to attention. He reaches up with his right hand. He goes to his mouth and he takes out the unlit stub of a cigar that he always had in his mouth that caricature thing that he liked to have. Mm-hmm. And he would take that unlit stub of a cigar out like this to the side. And we both lean in and kiss on the lips <laughs> and then we'd just lean back and he would put the cigar back in his mouth. And we loved it because it freaked all the firemen out. Right. And we, we would do that shit. Every, no matter what people, people could be jumping out windows at a fire, you know, it could be to, total chaos We always greeted each other like that. And we did that on the morning of September eleventh, two 2001. And Chris said to me, Timmy, this is really bad. And I said, "I, I know, Chris. Be careful, and I love you. And he said, I love you too. And he turned around, and he went in the stairwell, and he went up. He knew it, Ozzy. He said it to me. Timmy, this is really bad. And he still did it he turned around he went in the stairwell and he went up and he knew he wasn't coming back that is the story of the courage and heroism and duty and oath that was demonstrated by the firefighters and the police officers there that day EMTs, paramedics. Um, so Chris turns and goes into the stairwell. Over the sea of bumblebees, I hear someone yell my name. Timmy! And I turn and look, and over the top of all the helmets, I can see my best friend, Captain Terry Hatton from Rescue 1. I can see him because he was 6'4", and when his boots and helmet on, he was six. Six, six, seven. Big, tall guy, and he was my best friend in the world. I was, we spent every day together doing fire department shit. I ran over to my best friend, and we embraced. He had the Halligan in his hand. He had a flashlight in his other hand, and he—he's a big, big, strong guy, right? And he just wrapped his arms around me. and He squeezed me tight to his chest. And he kissed me on the cheek right here, and he said, "I love you, brother. I may never see you again." And he was the smart one, right? He was the one that they were grooming to be the chief of the New York City Fire Department one day, because he was that good. He was a rescue, a Brooklyn Rescue Two fireman. That's where he learned to be a fireman. Ballsy, brave, experienced. Medals and medals and medals on his chest. Mayor Giuliani said he called him uh, the city hall's resident hero because his girlfriend was Rudy's assistant, then wife. And he was was like a son to Rudy. And he kissed me on the cheek, and he said, I love you, brother. I may never see you again. And I blew it off because I'm the dumb fireman. He's the smart fireman. And, you know, I was relying on past... Experience with him, where we went places we should never. We had no business going, and we survived, and we came back. And that's what was in my head.
2: And and brother, at at this point, at this point, this is this is just within minutes. So this is still that mentality of heroes approaching an accident to save individuals, right?
0: Yeah. Yeah. Not a terrorist attack. Correct.
2: This is, I mean, I just want people to understand that. What's the mindset that, I mean, you guys feel that you're doing just another day at work.
0: Yeah.
2: You know, I mean, yes, it's more riskier than a regular day at work. Not every day a plane crashes, but it's happened there. You said, you've mentioned it's happened before, but a small plane. So it's people, people are are approaching this. Like we got to save lives. We got to do this. And then what happens, brother?
0: Well, people are jumping out windows, you know, and and we're starting to hear the bodies slam into the ground just outside where we are. And we know know no matter what, we have to go up there because people are jumping out the windows, man, 80 stories up, 90 stories up. And if they're making those choices, that means they need us. And so I kind of blew Terry off when he said that to me. I was like, yeah, 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 I'll see you afterwards. Be careful. I love you. And he's like, I love you, brother. I love you, brother. And then he turns around, same thing as Chris Blackwell, Captain Terry Hatton of Rescue One and his men from Rescue One, the elite special forces of the Manhattan Fire Department, all go in the stairwell and go up. They made it up to the 83rd floor of the North Tower. Uh, where they were fighting for the fire saving lives helping injured people out get into the helping injured people get into the stairwell to go down uh, when they got trapped in an early on interior collapse and I didn't hear this on the radio but I was guys that did hear it told me the story that Terry was calling for Mayday 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 rescue one is trapped 83rd floor, Mayday, Mayday, which is the worst thing a fireman could ever say or hear. And Rescue 1 was the guys, the more experienced, more highly trained guys.
2: Rescue 1 was the guys you would send in to save these guys.
0: Yeah. They're like the Delta Force or the Navy SEAL or the special forces of the New York Fire Department. And now they're in trouble. They're trapped. What the hell do you do with this? Um One of his guys, firefighter David Weiss, uh, somehow got himself out of the entrapment and made his way down to the lobby. Uh, Again, I didn't see this. Other guys saw him and relayed this story to me. David was an incredibly brave guy, firefighter, even as Rescue 1 went. He had a reputation as one of the most courageous, guys in rescue one and he made it down to the lobby and his head was, he, he didn't have his helmet on and his head was covered in blood and he was begging other firemen to go back up with him to help get rescue one out of being trapped. And some guys went up, the, ch- the chief had already ordered everybody out and I, I went a little further forward in the story, but
2: yeah, yeah, yeah it's all right. It's all right. We'll get
0: back um, to it though. But they, uh, uh, some guys went up back up with David and they all died. Um, uh, but and some guys left uh, and obeyed the chief's order and left uh, the building. And those are the guys that told me the story of rescue one and my best friend, Terry. Yeah. Um,
2: so, yeah, you saw Terry, you saw Terry heading out and you were, yeah. you were on the way. Terry was heading up. You were on the way out through the lobby.
0: Well, what, what happened is he, he went up, and uh, so where I'm going back a little earlier in the story mm-hmm. again. Uh, that's when the second plane hit the South Tower, and now everybody knows it's a terrorist attack. So we huddled up in the lobby of the North Tower, the first one to get hit, and uh, the leadership huddled up and, and decided how we were going to split our forces. And it was decided that myself and Chief Donald Burns would go to the South Tower and open up that command post. So I'm running with my friend Chief Burns, Assistant Chief of the New York City Fire Department. 41 years in the New York City Fire Department. A chief for half of that. Uh, and he had the lines in his face to, to show his experience. Like like Leatherface. I get what you're saying. And... If you saw, he was another big guy, six four guy. And if if you saw the photo, or in a dictionary of Irish fire chief, it would be his round, red cheeks mug with the lines in his face, you know. And um, he he grew up out in the out in the boroughs.
2: And uh, he was hardened. He was a hardened, a hardened firefighter. <laughs>
0: He, he was, He's a real deal, man. Yeah. Everybody had so much respect for him. And uh, uh, he, he was my friend for a long, long time. And I said, Chief, what do you need me to do? As we're hustling over to the South Tower. And uh, he had a little bit of a thicker New York accent. And he only talked out of one side of his mouth. The other side didn't really move so much. And he said, Timmy, there's not much you and I can do. I've ordered a fifth alarm, another 250 firefighters, but it's going to take them a while to get here because the first 250 are going to the North Tower. Our guys are coming from far away. Do your best and be careful. I saluted him, yes, chief. With that, a woman came over to us and um, screaming that there were people trapped in the elevator and the chief gave me the nod, go with her. He was going to the command post. I went with this woman. We were, you know, we were the first ones in there. And I followed her to the elevator uh, lobby. And she took me right to this one elevator car. And the hoistway doors were open, so you could see into the shaft. But the elevator car had not come down all the way, so you could just see the, the people's feet at the top of the opening, all the people that were trapped in the elevator. And they were panicking and screaming. And I remember seeing the men's shirt sleeves. And jackets as they were trying to pull the car down a little bit more, so there was enough room for them to slide out and jump out. Um, I didn't know it at the time, Oz. I only learned this within the last ten years, I guess. Uh, but that elevator car had free fallen seventy floors because the plane snapped the cable when it came in. Wow! So, so those people just te- took a seventy-story free fall. Thinking they're going to die the emergency brake assembly on the elevator system kicks in Works the way it was supposed to stops the car before it slams into the concrete pit and saves their life But now they're trapped in that car and the elevator brakes are on and you're not moving that car And in addition to that They're screaming because the elevator pit below them is full of jet fuel that's on fire, and they're right above it. So they're getting burned. And here's this big hero fireman Tim, completely useless to them.
2: Yeah, you, don't, gonna, what you, don't, do you don't have superhero powers. It's just... What am I going to
0: do with this? You know, and and I'm, I'm saying holy shit, what am I going to do? I mean, I know what to do all the time, right? You know, I, I'm good. I'm I'm trained. I'm experienced. I have tools, and, you know, I'll figure it out. But I had nothing. And so, uh, you know, I was an engine fireman. You know, I, I had to nozzle a lot in my early years, and so I, my thing was always you put out the fire, and your problems go away. And so I – Yelled for people to start bringing me fire extinguishers and we tried to put the fire out, but it was a jet fuel fire So it wasn't going out In in my frustration and this all happened in one minute, maybe and in my frustration, I turned around and To just see if I could see something to help and jog my brain and uh, My shoulder hit someone I looked over and it was a bumblebee and I looked up at his face and It was my friend Mike Lynch from the ladder four who I had worked with in 1990 And Mike was a really good young fireman who was trained by me and Terry. And he put his hand on my shoulder and he squeezed my shoulder. And he said, Timmy, I got it. I got it. Three words between firemen who know each other. And what he was saying to me in that moment was that he had the training, the experience, the tools and equipment, because he brought a whole fire truck with him. And the intestinal fortitude to save the lives of those poor people. I, I later told his widow, Denise, because I wanted to hear, I, I was the last one to see Mike alive. And I wanted her to know so that she could tell her children, who were very little then, she could tell her children one day what a hero their dad was. And I told her that in that moment, when Mike said to me, Timmy, I got it. He may as well have had wings coming out of his back because he was the angel sent to save the lives of those poor people. Over my radio, we got a urgent, urgent, urgent message. Confirmed by the FBI, third plane incoming. Confirmed by the FBI, impact imminent take immediate cover, urgent, urgent, urgent. I said, Mike, I got to go. I left Mike with those poor people, and I went to the command post, and I found a, a hard line that worked, and I picked it up. I dialed zero for operator, and she picked up right away, and I said, I'm with Mayor Giuliani in the World Trade Center. I need to talk to the White House immediately. And she tried to get me through to the White House, and she couldn't get through. And I said that I need to talk to the Pentagon, and she said the Pentagon is under attack, also, which is the first we knew of it.
2: That's when you found out that that now there there's already a, another third attack.
0: Yeah, oh, the the country is under attack. Correct. right? We heard third plane coming for us, and then Pentagon. Yep. So for us, the for us being in that kind of
2: yeah, you're Michael- not you're not being told much more intel. You don't know yet. You, you you think at that yeah. point in time what I'm thinking? Well, this is uh, Pearl Harbor. We're under attack.
0: Yeah, America's under attack. Yes. And uh, I talked, I, I wound up talking to New York State Emergency Management, and I said, uh, they, they assured me that the fighter jets were coming to protect us overhead and shoot down any planes that were going to crash into us so we could do our job. And um, the lobby was full of people who were injured. I- imagine this you, 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 you get burned or broken or something smoke inhalation but you live but you come down 70 floors in a dark smoky wet stairwell yeah right?
2: this is the finish line
0: down 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 and you finally get down there and the door bursts open and there's light and there's firemen and police officers and you're you're good you made it you, and so what do you do
2: you give co-ops. up you give up this is the finish line yeah
0: you made it right And we had hundreds of people in the lobby doing that. that. Wow. Um, And it was impeding our evacuation. And so chief Burns said to me, Timmy, get the paramedics in here, go get the paramedics, get them in here and start getting these people out of here. Yes, chief. And that's why I left the South tower. And I ran right out on Liberty street. And you know, Think objects, pieces of the building, and bodies were crashing to the ground. And I, I ran out, and the first thing I saw when I ran out I was to my left, in out of my left eye. I can still see it in my visual memory forever because you never forget that. Was a dead fireman on VZ Street, who was crushed by a woman who jumped. It had happened right before I went out. It just happened. And his uh, brothers, who was they were trying to run into the tower to help. And his brothers that were running with him, you know, without getting too graphic, were affected by it. And they were trying to yank what just a second ago was their brother firefighter. They're trying to yank his body and get him out of the street, but there it's it's two bodies now that have become one body and someone yelled my name out there. And I looked up away from that scene, and I looked over, and Ladder 4 was there where I had worked before, and Mike Lynch, the angel, was the chauffeur, and he was there at his truck trying to take off the motor for the uh, Jaws of Life, the hearse tool. He was going to use those spreaders, the Jaws of Life, in the car to move the elevator car down to make enough room to get those people out but as you know that that motor is really really heavy and he was trying to get out of like a high apartment compartment and uh and he yelled yelled to me to give him a hand and i was running toward him but another fireman got there first and uh and then he waved me off and that's the last time i saw mike alive um I turned around out there and I ran over to West Street and I found the paramedics, the special operations paramedics who I knew. And um, Charlie Wells was the captain. And I said, Charlie, we got to get you guys inside. He said, no, we're all set up to triage out here. Have have the have everybody bring them out to hospital triage outside. And I said, there's nobody that can do that. They're all going up the stairwells. We need you guys to move forward, which was a little unusual. uh, But he said, give me a minute. Let's. I'm gonna get all our stuff together, and uh, they put on uh, their helmets and they threw all their doctor shit onto the stretcher, and myself and three paramedics and the stretcher went running to go back into the South Tower, and we're running right along, trying to stay close to the Marriott, which was uh, three World Trade Center that adjoined the South Tower, and we're just trying to stay as close as we can so we don't get crushed. And uh, the tower was set back on the sidewalk. So we came around the corner a little back, a little bit, and the sidewalk was deeper. And we came around that corner of the Marriott Hotel. And just as we did that, the, the tower collapsed. We were about 20 feet from the door of going into that building uh, when it collapsed. But because we were outside, we could hear it Very clear, clear as bell. You knew immediately what it was. It was so loud and it was one very loud crack of some kind of steel cracking it it was so loud that it reverberated through the canyons of lower manhattan like crack crack
2: crack 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 it was just so level loud. level after level just falling on top yeah. of each other
0: yeah yeah that's what happened exactly right next progressive collapse we call it boom 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 and this is happening about 80 80 stories up and we're trained as firefighters. You cannot outrun a building collapse. You have to seek immediate cover. And I, I, I knew that. I knew that we were, you know, we were a collapse unit, and you know, we knew a lot about it. And we had been in a lot of collapses before. And so I yelled to the paramedics, "Follow me!" And we went right back into the Marriott Hotel, uh, figuring maybe that would protect us. And right there where we went in was a restaurant called a tall ships restaurant uh it was the lobby of the marriott hotel and we went in that door and it was as clear as this room here where i'm sitting and just like that it went pitch black and everything that wasn't nailed down was in our face the south tower was collapsing on the marriott and the marriott was collapsing around us i hit the deck and I knew my only chance at survival was to find a vertical column, the strongest part of the building, you know, the 1% chance I had of living. Um, the noise as the building was collapsing around us, the noise I can only say it sounded to me like sitting on the tarmac at JFK surrounded by 747s full
2: blasts. And possibly with trains flying by. I mean, I mean just yeah, us-
0: all of that, all of that I, it's, it's just the loudest thing I've ever heard in my life in 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 like shaking and vibrating and uh, You couldn't breathe because the, the dust was so thick. I was trying to put my mouth and nose in my shirt And I was ch- I mean, I'm pretty good at breathing because you know, that's what we do in smoke, you know, I know I know how to preserve bre- breaths and to be you know very good with breathing but this was getting me and everything was filling up with the dust your ears your nose your mouth it was so thick and uh, I found a vertical column a big one and I wrapped my arms around it and I tried to get as close with it as I could and I held on as tight as I could and uh, My legs went up in the air. It blew my hu- the helmet off my head They later did a scientific study in that space to see how big how much the wind was and they scientifically proved that it was 185 miles an hour where I was, and I somehow, I think through the strength of God, I was able to hang on. Um, it was not my, he 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 said it was not my time uh, to go, um, and uh, and I and I lived through it. Um, so that's a long story about leading up to. My story of losing well over a hundred of my friends, uh, including the ones I described to you—Mike Lynch, the Angel, Terry Hatton, the captain of the of Rescue One, my best friend, Chris Blackwell, who I kissed on the lips—all those guys did the same thing as Captain Patty Brown and the emergency service, NYPD guys, and the Port Authority police officers. Um, New York City Fire Department lost 343. Our previous large, largest loss of life was 12 in one incident. Uh, the Port Authority Police, which is a very small police department, lost 37. I shouldn't say lost. I said, should say 37 of them were murdered by uh, radical Islamic terrorists. Um, uh, so it's the largest law. Uh, Port Authority Police, it's the largest loss of life for a law enforcement agency in American history in one incident, by far.
2: By far. And they were a for small,
0: sure. small police department. And, and uh, the, the NYPD lost uh, 23 uh, American heroes.
2: And and brother, uh, I mean, obviously, the reason you're in the sh- on the show is, is because of that, that surviving and thriving part. Um, I know the story, obviously, the aftermath, but how have you been able to, to survive how have you been able to i mean look anybody would on is like the reality people would hear your story and say how does this man live and uh i know that there's a fire burning behind you that's lighting how you live and what you're doing now and how you're avenging these murders and and i agree with you 100 percent. i've always said it; these are murders uh these people were murdered um yeah. and and you know how how are you what is it that you're doing and how is it that that you're you're going along your days
0: yeah, so it, it was not easy. I mean, this, this is now uh, 19 years ago, right? So there were some real dark years in there, very dark years, um, especially 2004, 2005, in those years where I lost, I, I retired from that whole thing, and, I, and then, then I was lost. And this is what happens to a lot of our military, too. You come back, and you kind of lose your purpose. And you don't have that focus and passion anymore. And, and and that happened to me in those years, 2004 and 2005. And I I, I luckily have a, a, a strong faith. I have a strong uh, a family, my immediate family. Um, um, and what I, what I didn't know at the time, which I know now looking back, is if you just hang on through, Every day through those times, through those dark times, just hang on, because at some point brighter days are coming, and and that's the key is to just hold on through those dark days, and do your best to take care of yourself and be open to uh, new, good, happy things happening to you. Um, be careful with the crutches. Right, yep. The yep. drugs, yep. The alcohol. I know the. Uh,
2: I know that you have this fire though in you, man. You've you've making it a your life's mission almost to to take down these murderers.
0: Yeah, I, I am uh, pursuing the five terrorists who uh, planned September 11th. Not not the hijackers, correct? But the guys who you work for Bin Laden, uh, and we have them down in Guantanamo Bay and. Uh, we are in a military trial. And so I'm a part of that team prosecuting these five uh, scum. And it's taken too long and it's frustrating, but that doesn't matter. Uh, We're still going to pursue it. We're still going to prove the way America does, which I'm very proud of. We're going to prove in evidence and we're going to tell the world in evidence and we're going to show the world in evidence that they did what we say they did. And we will prove that in a court in a military court of law, um, and uh, hopefully they will be uh, they will get the death sentence. That's what we're seeking. Uh, and we will have dealt with them the way that America deals with people. blind justice, um, but justice nonetheless.
2: yeah, and uh, I, and I bring that up, brother. I bring that up because you know people would people would probably ask like, Oh, but he probably, you know, I wonder if they've got closure when we got, when we captured or killed, when we killed Bin Laden, you know, and then closure will never come is what, you know, I do want people to understand is you got to process that, overcome it, you know, survive and thrive. It's the closure. You, you might never find it. Correct, brother.
0: Oh yeah. No, you'll, you, I will never ever have closure on what happened to me personally or the loss of my friends and the way it was done and the way they suffered. That that will never go away. Uh, what, what happens is that new and different things come into your life. And I, I, I am in such a wonderful spot right now. Uh, I'm doing work that I'm very passionate about. Um, I, and is just a little bit of a funny story that came out of nowhere. When I came back to Manhattan, because I had gone to live other places. But I came back to Manhattan in 2004 for the first time, and and I I came back here to none of my guy friends. They were all dead. You know, I had all the widows that were my friends and all that, but I had no guy friends, like to have a cigar or, you know, just to do what guys do together, right? And I thought that's what I needed, but God has a funny way of working, and I wound up being rescued by a group of Brazilian women who – took who understood my pain and they took me into their group. They, they took me to Brazil twice, you know, with them, you know, and they, they brought happiness back into my life and, 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 uh, you know, they came in my life and they left, but they were here for, for a couple of years and, and that really started to get me back on track. Uh, and I, I, I bounced around for a while trying to figure out what I wanted to do with my life. Um, and then I, I got back with Mayor Giuliani when he ran for president, and that gave me some purpose and passion. And then I started. And one of the things that everybody can do is, and I know it works for everybody I know. If you're hurting, go help someone else who's hurting. And then you start to lift yourself up, and then you start to lift them up. Go volunteer for a charity. Go, uh, I mean, you're doing it. That's what you do. Right, you you have your own charitable work that you do, and it 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 lifts all our boats up, right?
2: I mean everything. I mean even me trying to do this podcast. I there's not a single penny I've made from this. I don't have sponsors. I don't make advertisements for it. I started this because Jay's been kept on telling me that I got to tell my story and I got to get out there, and I can't. I just I'm I'm struggling real hard getting on social media the way he does and opening my life to the public like that. Because the first time somebody says something, I want to tell them to go fuck themselves. And, and that's not the proper way to do it. Cause Jay's all Jay's also also teaching me that you never know who you're talking to you treat everybody right. And with respect and everything. And I, and I, I do when I go out in public, I try to become an image of what Jay and the overcome Academy taught me. I mean, I was there for two fucking weeks and it changed my life. You know, it changed my life. It took me, I got out of the military in the Marine Corps in 2006, hit rock bottom in 2012, 2013. When I was wanting to kill myself, 2014, and then turned my life around by myself in a way with uh, with assisted therapy and stuff at the vet center I was going to. But I realized I needed more things in my life, found out about the Overcome Academy after I started my organization, and I went through it, and then that changed my perspective i told jay that it, it lit the fire that i needed you know under my ass it just it really did and i just i i feel like i'm letting him down because i, I don't get on social media the way i should be right so th- literally my starting my podcast was my way of doing it because i i don't have to do a live where people are going to comment and i'm going to tell somebody during a live can you imagine somebody's recording my live and i'm like go fuck yourself you know on live? They, oh, look. There's Ozzy, the guy from Operation Web telling people to go fuck themselves, you know, <laughs> like, so hey, I'm like, let me do this podcast. I'll record this. I'll do Zooms in my house. I'll have certain guests that come over my house and I'll record them. I air it. And that's it. I'm still telling my story. I'm still trying to help people. And and yeah, you 100 percent. You've said it. I mean, helping other individuals when you are hurting is one of the best medicines. And, and I think what really you find out from it is that you're not the only one hurting as bad as you're hurting because for instance people might say well dude what this man experienced is like none other but you don't know that you know so you can meet somebody that has just been through cancer or has just has just lost their mother and then now their their husband so imagine losing your mother and then your husband within the first week like you that it might be as as catastrophic as you know what 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 tim is feeling and what i have felt and what i've gone through so it you, if you could turn it around and, and help another individual, you're going to realize first and foremost, you're not alone and and hurting and it's natural to hurt, but that it feels great to help, you know?
0: Yeah. And you brought up something else that I want to uh, uh, echo in. And, and that's the therapy, you know, we've got to get rid of this uh, stigma about therapy because it saved my life. Um,
2: yeah. It doesn't wanna, mean that we're crazy no, just because we're going to therapy. No, you, <laughs>
0: break you break your arm you go to the doctor correct you know right your, your brain is messed up you go you go to the the shrink right it's it's fine um you know she, she the therapist i you have to go through a lot till you get the one that you click with yep. but when you find the right one uh uh it's 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 like magic and and she taught me and i'll i'll leave this with you guys compartmentalize your grief so she said when you decide how long and how long you want to do it for, but you allow yourself to grieve for a certain amount of time every day. And then when you're done, you close that door, you you put that box back, the top back on that box, and the rest of the day you try and have a productive life. And, you know, you might start out with two hours of grieving and then an hour and a half of grieving and then an hour of grieving. And and that grieving is okay, but don't let it run your entire day, every day. And that worked for me. The other thing that worked well for me was Andrea Bocelli's voice. For whatever reason, his beautiful voice speaks to my heart. And I can sit there and listen to him all day long and he brings me peace.
2: Oh, look at that. You see, now I know that when you're coming over, finally, whenever you're down here in Miami, I'm going to make you a nice dinner and play that in the background so we could relax and smoke a cigar.
0: Yep. Cigar, red wine, Bocelli, nice dinner. My brother, Ozzy, outstanding.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Brother, tell me, tell me uh, if you don't, is there anything else that you're doing? Because I know that. Uh, you do a lot of public speaking as well and and and, and stuff like that but cuz that's how i met you i mean you came to the overcome academy to speak and tell your story so yeah
0: so uh so now um the, the tw- and i didn't know this before but the tw- the, the mark of what is history is, is is it 20 years ago and so now we're just about at uh that 911 is history and so the interest in that ha- is really exploding so i've been I've been speaking at the 9-11 museum quite a lot, uh, but speaking into our military uh, groups, our our tier one operator groups, before they deploy, I I go and speak to them uh, and remind them why they're doing what they're doing and how important it is, and and then say thank you to them. Uh, Also, all the intelligence agencies uh, in the D.C. area, uh, and then also uh, eighth grade classes. Um, It seems to be that's the appropriate age for kids to really start understanding what 9-11, uh, was, uh, because they don't know. Right. So, uh, I, I'm doing all those things. Um, I, I'm not, I, I'm not making money at it. You know, uh, it, it's, it's just something I want to do. And it's it's, important. it's,
2: it's become your way of life.
0: Yeah. Um, and, and, you know, too, my peers, my, my guys who, Survived or dug on the pile for eight or nine months. Yeah. Afterwards, they're all dying. I'm 57 years old. They're dying at 53, 55, 57 years old, and I don't know how much time I have.
2: Yeah, I, you I, don't I, know. I, I, Everybody right now in that scenario is a ticking clock.
0: Yeah. So I'm trying to speak about the day as much as I can and tell the story as much as I can, and uh, uh, and one day my voice will be silenced and. I hope I will have done the
2: best as I could. So man, brother, what a, it was an honor when I finally was able to, even though we had talked about it, you know, about getting on the show and stuff. Uh, yeah. I know I, I, to me in my head, I'm I'm like, and I'm not trying to diminish myself, but I'm a, like, I'm a small guy. I'm a small fry in this, in this industry and I'm a nobody, but I knew we had our connections. And then like a, you know, you, you did something for me that, uh, you know, caught me out of the blue. You were with Jay the other day when you found out about that a scenario that I was involved in that, you know, would have triggered anybody. And yeah. uh, you called me and uh, I, I found that very personal and I loved it and and, and I appreciated it. And then, and then in that conversation is when this podcast came up and you were like, man, you, you haven't reminded me and stuff. So I appreciate it so much for you joining me and, and, and sharing your amazing story with my guest.
0: Hey, Oz, if, if, we'll, we'll leave it with this. If if you had taken your own life or I had taken my own life, we never would have met each other, bro. Yep. And look, I, I'm so blessed to have you as my brother and my friend. And we're going to have, I hope, a good long time of, of friendship together. Uh, and that's one great example of
2: why never finding, give up. Yeah,
0: finding yeah. something. We can't predict our future. I, I, I never knew you would be coming in my life, man.
2: Exactly. I mean that this happened to me when I really wanted to end my life in twenty fourteen. And from that what has come from it is from not ending my life and not giving up is me seeking more answers on how to fix myself instead of seeking more answers of the past and seeking answers of what I could have done to prevent whatever happened to me. And I write what, it doesn't matter. Listen, I need to learn how to fix my brain and learn how to live with what we have. And you're doing the same thing. You need to, you, you, you did it in your format. You, you needed to learn how to, how to, you know, redo your whole community over there. Cause like how you said, you lived away from there for a while, came back home and all your brothers were gone. And, and I mean, it's amazing that, like you said, by us not giving up, look what we're at right now. We're literally filming an interview for a podcast in yeah. hopes to help other individuals that might be in this scenario. So we went from not giving up to crossing paths, and now we're helping right. each other and helping other people. So, yeah, it's it's a huge, huge, uh, I guess, testimony to to not give up because... Yeah. Um, you' uh, there is light on, at the end of uh, at the end of this darkness, whatever darkness you're going through, you're gonna eventually see a peak of light. Yeah. So That's awesome. Thank you I so have much brother.
0: to tell you um we, we'll do we'll do a part two for this because definitely we'll do we we a
2: part two, you know and uh definitely I guess we could do a part two definitely on that date that I could release somewhat for that episode of the September my September episode. because so I know September is gonna be a very impactful month. Cause it's going to start with your interview and, and, and we're going to, we're going to be honoring four other individuals that because of September 11th and us going to Iraq, you know, died September 12th, my Lieutenant and September 13th, we lost three more Marines in my unit. So, uh, of 2004. So September is going to be a very impactful month for my listeners. So thank you so much, Tim. I appreciate it, brother. I love you, Ozzy. Love you too.
1: Thanks so much for tuning into this episode of the Post-Traumatic Survival Podcast. We sure do appreciate it. If you haven't done so already, make sure you're subscribed to the show wherever you consume podcasts. This way you'll receive notifications from us as new episodes become available. If you feel so inclined, please leave us a review. We certainly appreciate it. And don't forget to tell your friends about the show. We appreciate you and them. Until next time, survivors.